was Moses a rabbi? What do you think? Was Moses a rabbi? He was a teacher. He was a teacher. So we actually call him Moshe, Moshe Rabbeinu. Moshe Rabbeinu, which means Moshe, our teacher. But was he a rabbi? I don't think rabbis came about until later. When did rabbis come about? And what is the role of rabbis? What is the purpose of rabbis? Their goal is to teach. So let me start off with a statement of the Talmud. The Talmud says that greater than Rav is Rebbe. Greater than Rebbe is Rabon. Greater than Rabon is a plain name. Godel mi Rabon Shemoy. Greater than Rabon is just being called by first name basis. That's the greatest. Be being called on first name basis. You want to know how great someone is if they're called by a title Rav? That's one step. If they're called by the title Rabbi, that's an even greater step. If they're called by the title Rabon, that's a higher step. If they're called on first name basis, that's the highest. Does that mean that they have more teaching in I'm going to explain to you what that means. I'm going to explain to you exactly what that means. I want to tell you one other story first. Okay, one other story. The Talmud tells us that during a period of Shmad, the period of Shemad. Um, did we ever do a class on the Bar Kokhba rebellion? No, no, you better write that down then. No, okay, that's another class. The period of Shemad follows the Bar Kokhba rebellion. The Bar Kokhba rebellion was a second rebellion. The, the Jews rebelled against the Romans in the 60s. This is the original 60s before there were any hundreds. And um, they uh, rebelled, I think, starting in 66. And, that was, and there was a great war in which the temple was destroyed in the year 69 or 70. But then, some 60 years later, in the 130s, the Jews in Israel rebelled against the Romans again. And this time, they were led by a fellow known as Shimon Bar Kokhba. And the, initially, the second rebellion was initially much more successful than the first rebellion. And they even managed to declare Jewish independence for about two years. Um, but it was brutally crushed by the Romans. And the Romans crushed it even worse than the first rebellion. After the, first rebe after the second rebellion, the Romans decided they were done with the Jews. They were never going to allow the Jews to rebel again. The way they were going to do that was by making Jewish practice illegal in the Roman Empire getting rid of Judaism, that there should be no more Judaism. So there was a 15-year period known as Shemad, from about 135 to about 150, during which Judaism was illegal in the Roman Empire. And <coughs> the details are, it's a story for itself, a cost for itself. But for our story, the Romans declared that nobody is allowed to grant smicha, rough, loosely translated as ordination. Any rabbi caught granting smicha, any rabbi caught granting smicha will be killed, and the people that they are that they are giving smicha to, ordinating, will be killed. And the city where they are doing the smicha, the city where they are caught, will be totally destroyed. So 
The Talmud says there was a scholar called Rabbi Bava ben Buta. Rabbi, uh, Rabbi, sorry, Rabbi Bava ben Buta decided to um, give smicha anyway. He gave smicha to um, five scholars. He went outside of a city between two mountains. That if he's caught, nobody, this, nobody will get hurt. The cities will not be destroyed. And he gave smicha. He, he ordained five scholars, five, five great scholars. And then the Romans somehow got wind of what was going on. They show, the Roman soldiers showed up. He told his students, you run. I'm old. I can't run. The Romans came and they, they um, attacked him. And they um, threw, I think it says, 300 spears into him, killing him. And uh, he died a horrible death. But at least the smicha was given to these five scholars. Why did he risk his life to give smicha? So a little story about, so a little background about rabbis. Firstly, the term rabbi. What does the term rabbi mean? And then I'll explain to you the history of the smicha. What's a rabbi? So a rabbi just means a teacher. Now a rabbi, rabbi is an English word. A rabbi is an English word meant to mean a Jewish spiritual leader. The equivalent to the term rabbi in Hebrew is rav. Rav. Rav is the equivalent to the term rabbi in Hebrew. So ravs were Jewish spiritual leaders. And essentially, a rav meant a teacher, a teacher. What does it take to be a rav? What does it take to be a rav? So, sorry, study. You got to study. So to be a rav, you need to have what's called smicha. You need to be ordained, and I'll soon explain what that means, to be a rav. Now, to be, or it would loosely be translated in English as rabbi. Now, the Rav is someone who has studied and has essentially, as we'll see, been tested on those studies. That is a Rav. That's the role of a rabbi, right? Someone who has studied and been tested on those studies. So the, um, but the rabbi has no spiritual powers. And unfortunately, one of the problems here in the US is that many Jews, and we've mentioned this before, do not have a strong Jewish education. So they tend to look at Judaism through Christian lenses. Because most Jews know more about Christianity than they know about Judaism. So they tend to look at, at Judaism through Christian lenses, lenses. Now in Christianity, particularly in Catholicism, the spiritual leaders, the priests, the bishops, actually are given so to speak, religious powers. They have powers, whether it's powers to absolve sins, whether it's control of the church. They, have, they actually have powers, religious powers. In Judaism, the Rav is a teacher. He has no religious power whatsoever. And in fact, in origin, in originally his only power, so to speak, is his, in his knowledge and his ability to teach others. That is the only religious power that a Rav has. They have no other, um, they don't have, there is no, um, 
there is no um, mitzvah or Jewish ritual that requires a rav, that requires a rabbi. There is no service that requires a rabbi. You could go through Judaism without being, without ever meeting a rabbi, without ever meeting a rav. Now, as we'll talk about soon today, in many communities, the term rabbi has taken on a whole different meaning. But that's what it originally meant. So let me give you a little history. When Moshe Rabbeinu, when Moses was given the Torah, God gave Moses all of the teachings. Moses was a prophet, and he had all of the teachings that God had given him. God had taught him all of Judaism. Now, Moses, by the way, had, was also the civil leader of the Jewish people. So was his successor, Joshua. Following the death of Joshua, the civil leadership was separate from the um, the civil leadership was separate from the religious leadership. In other words, there, there was the religious leadership, and they, there was the civil leadership. They were separate. Um, there was also another role, a lead, type of leadership in Judaism, which was the leadership of the temple. The service of God in the temple was led by Kohanim, priests. Priests were descendants of Aaron, male descendants of Aaron, who led the service in the temple. The priests had their own organizational structure, led by a Kohen Gadol, or a high priest. And they were all descendants of Aaron. They were in charge of the service in the temple. They controlled the service in the temple. There was a separate role, which was the civil leadership. Originally, they were shoftim, they were called judges, and then later they were... Um, then later they were kings. It was very rare for a religious leader to also be a civil leader. There were a handful of exceptions. It was also very rare for a high priest to also be a religious leader or a civil leader. The high priests were only in charge of the temple. There were a handful of exceptions. In second, this, this was throughout the, the period of our first temple. It, during the period of the second temple, at least for the early period of the second temple, for whatever reason, the high priests also held the role as the civil leader of the land of Israel. They also held the civil leadership um, under Greek rule, but they held kind of the internal Jewish affairs. They took care of it um, for whatever reason, and that lasted um, <laughs> for at least the first 200 years of um, the second temple. But generally, those roles were different. There was the priests who actually have spiritual, I wouldn't say power, but they have a unique spiritual role. They can offer sacrifices. They can light the menorah. They can bring the incense. They can do the service of the temple. Those were male descendants of Aaron, of Aaron, Moses' brother. There was a separate role for the civil leaders, people who were in charge of the executives, who were in charge of keeping the country running, keeping the place running. And then <coughs> there was a separate role, which was the religious leadership. What was the job? And they were generally kept totally separate. What was the job of the religious leadership? So the job of the relig religious leadership was to make, was to um, decide, they both legislate, make laws, and most importantly, decide laws, teach God's Torah, and apply the Torah to any given situation. 
So the religious leadership had the right to create laws. They also had the right to enforce the laws. So they stood, they, they, their role was both as legislators as well as judges judging what the law should be. They also could judge criminal cases. They also were able to judge civil cases. And that was the religious leadership. Now, in order to be a religious leader, a person had to have what was called smicha. What does the word smicha mean? Smicha means leaning, to lean, L-E-A-N, to lean. Why was it called smicha? Because God tells Moses, lean your hands on Joshua, put your hands on Joshua and lean on Joshua, and declare him to be a leader. Give, in other words, pass over the leadership role to Joshua by putting your hands on him. Moses did the same to all the members of the Sanhedrin. The Sanhedrin is the high court of Israel, which had 71 judges. And he did the same to many, many other Jewish scholars were given what was called smicha. Now, what did it take to get this smicha? Now, then anyone with smicha was then able to bestow smicha to anybody else. What did it take to get smicha? You had to be knowledgeable in all of Jewish law. If you were knowledgeable in Jewish law, you were able to get smicha. Someone with smicha had the authority to serve in a Jewish court. The Jewish courts both legislated laws and adjudicated laws. They dealt with criminal cases, they dealt with civil cases, and then there was a Jewish high court, the Sanhedrin with 71 judges, that had the authority to actually create new laws, what we call rabbinic law. And that was all, in order to sit on any of these courts, they had to have smicha. They had to be given this smicha, literally leaning, leaned on, or given ordination, but this did not give them any unique ritual powers. There was no unique rituals for them. There were no unique mitzvahs for them. It meant that they could sit on a court, um, adjudicating law on the lower courts, or creating law if they were on the Jewish Supreme Court. That's what it allowed them to do. And so, over the years, many, many, many different rabbis, many, many different well, scholars, we should say, were given smicha. Now, you were able to get smicha for all of Judaism, which was originally the norm. And then it appears that with time, they would also give smicha for specific things. Particularly, they would split smicha between ritual laws, someone who knows how to adjudicate ritual laws, and somebody who knows how to adjudicate civil laws financial laws. And those that knew how to deal with civil laws were given a smicha called yore, yore, which means one can rule, one has the authority to rule. Someone that had the smicha to adjudicate civil law, financial laws, was given yadin, he can judge. Now, how was the smicha given? So, smicha was only able to be given to Jewish males, it was not given to women was only given to Jewish males. And it was only given, <coughs> it was only given, um, in order for it to be given, it had to be given three people together, uh, three scholars together had to give the smicha, you had to have three scholars doing it. And 
And, and, but, and anyone with smicha was able to give smicha to another scholar who was knowledgeable enough to get the smicha. Except it had to be given within the land of Israel. You could not give smicha outside the land of Israel. And this smicha system continued for many, 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 many years. Until the days of Hillel. Hillel was a leader of the Sanhedrin, a leader of the high court, at the very beginning of the common era, about 70 years before the destruction of the temple. Hillel, he's, Hillel's very often known with his colleague Shammai. Hillel was the president, the Nasi, the president of the high court, and Shammai, his colleague, who's often known for the stories they have together, was the head, was known as the Av Betin, or literally the father of the court, which was the role of the vice president of the court. So Hillel was the president of the court, Shammai was the vice president of the court. <coughs> now, in Hillel's days, they made a couple of different rules with regard to smicha. Most importantly, they made a rule that you cannot give smicha because apparently people, scholars that had smicha, were giving smicha to the wrong people or to people that weren't worthy of it. So they made a rule in order to get smicha, you need to have the permission of the president of the high court. Without the, pres without the permission of the nasi, the president of the high court, you cannot get smicha. Then they made a further rule. They said, we're going to start making titles so we should know who has smicha and who does not have smicha. Anyone who has smicha is going to be called rabbi. <coughs> rabbi from the <coughs> word means teacher. Anyone who has smicha is going to be called rabbi as their title. Anyone who does not have, anyone who does not have smicha will be known by first name basis. The president of the high court will be given an extra, a different title. He will be called Rabban. Rabban. So Rabban is the president of the high court. Rabbi is any other scholar that has smicha. Anybody who already had smicha before this rule was made was just known by first name basis. So that's why the Talmud says, Rabban is greater than Rabbi. Rabbi is a regular person with smicha. Rabban is the president of the high court. And get greater than Rabban is, first, is, by, is being known by their first name. Why? because it meant that they came from an earlier period. Anybody who was called by anyone who was called by first name basis, it could be they, came, they lived later and they just never got smicha. But more likely, they came from an earlier period. Like Hillel himself, who was the leader at the time that they made the role, maybe it, was in his, it may have been in his son's days. Hillel himself is known by first name basis. Hillel, no Rabbi Hillel, just Hillel. He's just known plain as Hillel. Shammai is known as Shammai. Even Hillel's son is known as Shimon, who was the leader after Hill. The first Rabban 
The first leader of the, of the high court known by the name of Rabban is Rabban Gamliel. Rabban Gamliel lived, we don't know when, a little before the destruction of the first temple, of the second temple, sorry. So from this period and on, from about the beginning of the common era, before that, there was smicha, you had smicha, there were no titles. Starting then, they made this title Rabbi for anyone with smicha, Rabban for the lead president of the high court. Now, smicha continued, and with, of course, the permission of the president of the high court. Smicha continued. Uh, they also, they wanted to make sure that the president didn't have absolute authority, so they made a rule also, sorry, that the president needed also permission from the Avbetin, from the vice president. You need the double permission now to get smicha. They, made it, they tried to make it harder to get this smicha. But most scholars got smicha. Some were not able to do it. It says there was a scholar called Shmuel, Shmuel Yarchina'a. Shmuel Yarchina'a was one of the greatest Jewish scholars. And his teacher, Rabbi Yehuda Hanasi, had wanted to give him smicha. But they weren't, it, wasn't, it says it never worked out. They weren't able to get the permissions, even though he was one of the greatest scholars ever. He just never got smicha. And at a certain point, he said, you know what? It's okay, I'll manage without the smicha. I will never be a rabbi. I will never be able to sit on a court. I will never be able to adjudicate um, law. But it's okay, he was the greatest scholar in Israel at the time. So you didn't need that. You could be a great scholar without the smicha. But most of them... Um, so, but generally, the scholars would get smicha. They could only get smicha, though, of course, in the land of Israel, in, uh, in Eretz Israel, in the land of Israel. Outside of Israel, you could not give smicha. Around the year 200, around the year 200, in the... Yes, Stephen? But these rules were not adhered to during Shema, as you example. Oh, right. Oh, so thank you for bringing the, up the Shema. So, during the period of Shema, during this 15-year period after the destruction of the first, after the fall of the Bar Kokhba rebellion, about <coughs> 135 to 150, during this 15-year period, the Romans went on a campaign to kill every single rabbi they can find. They killed Rabbi Akiva. They tortured him to death, um, very famously. I'm going to do a class on him coming up. Um, the, they tortured many rabbis, but they killed many rabbis. You kill out all the rabbis, there's no one that has smicha left. Nobody will ab be able to give smicha. So Rabbi Yehuda ben Maseri, who mentioned before, um, was scared that there won't be any scholars with smicha. So therefore he went and he gave smicha to some younger scholars that didn't yet have it. Even, and he risked his life for it because if all the older generation that had smicha are all killed out before they give smicha to a next generation of scholars, there won't be any smicha anymore. So he risked his life to retain the smicha. And indeed, when they reconvened after the period of Shemad was over, when the Sanhedrin reconvened in Usha, most of the scholars were younger scholars. And most of the earlier, most of the leaders from 15 years earlier had all been killed. There, were the whole, there was a whole new generation now of scholars um, that uh, in Usha, in the new Sanhedrin, in the new high court that they created. So smicha, though, continued until a little after the year 200. 
After the year 200, not long after the death of Rabbi Yehuda Anasi, the author of our Mishnah, which is the first book of the oral Torah that was written. The, uh, af so after his death, the Romans, um, this is as Christianity um, is gaining popularity in the Roman Empire, particularly in Israel, Syria area, and the, um, the Romans uh, start making life very, very difficult for the Jews in Israel. So many, many, many scholars, including the Shmuel that we mentioned before, Shmuel Yarchina, and his good colleague Rav Abba, and many, many Jewish scholars fled Israel. Where did they go? They went to Babylon. Babylon was an area, Babylon was an area, Mesopotamia, which was the center of Jewish life. There were more Jews in Babylon than Israel all this time. And although Israel was where the scholarship was and where the courts were and where the yeshivas were, and all the smart kids from Babylon went to Israel to study, Babylon didn't really have yeshivas. It had a small one. But now, but Babylon had the large, wealthy Jewish community. And so many Jewish scholars, kind of like if you want to compare it, like the U.S. Jewish community today. It was the large, wealthy Jewish community of the world. But because of the persecution in Israel, many, many scholars fled Israel and went to Babylon, where they opened two great yeshivas. Shmuel Yarchina opened, became, took over the leadership of the great yeshiva in Pumpedisa, uh, sorry, in Naharda'a. Naharda'a at the time was the capital of a Jewish autonomous state in Babylon. Naharda'a is, modern, is around modern-day Fallujah, and that was a all-Jewish, it was the center of a Jewish autonomous area in Babylon along the Euphrates River. And Rav moved a little further up the Euphrates River to a town called Sura, where he built a great yeshiva. And there were great yeshivas. And now Babylon became a center of Jewish scholarship. But there was only one problem. You could not grant smicha in Babylon. You're outside of Israel. You couldn't grant smicha there. So there were no rabbis anymore. There was no one with smicha. There were no rabbis. There was no one who were, was ordained to rule or legislate. This is the 200s, the early 200s. There was no one who was able to rule or legislate. So there were no more rabbis. In the land of Israel, there were still scholars, there were still yeshivas, there was still Sanhedrin, there was still the high court. And that continued till about the 300s, the mid-300s. By that time, Rome had adapted Christianity and the great yeshiva of Tiberius closed. The Sanhedrin was closed and the Jewish life in the early 300s, um, Jewish life in Israel, at least spiritual life, fell apart and Smicha was discontinued in the land of Israel. But Torah study continued in Babylon, became the new center of Judaism. But in Babylon, you couldn't give Smicha, which meant that in Babylon, there was no one with halachic authority or authority to make rulings, nobody with authority to make um, Nobody with authority to sit on a court. Nobody with authority to uh, make new laws, to have a Sanhedrin, to have a high court. So now there was no more religious authority in Judaism. 
little more religious authority. There were still scholars. There were still scholars, but they had no religious authority. Now, they did still have courts in Babylon. In fact, throughout the entire period that Jews had already by this time been in Babylon, Jews were in Babylon from 420 BC. So Jews had been in Babylon by this time for well over 600 years. So there, and there had always been Jewish courts in Babylon. Sometimes they were legal courts because they were people who got smicha in Israel and then came back to Babylon to serve on courts. But there were periods where they didn't have rabbis. They didn't have people with smicha to serve on courts. However, in Babylon, there was a kehila. There was a Jewish community, an organized Jewish community led by the Reish Geluta, led by the prince of the exile, led by a prince, a Jewish prince, who was one of the Persian, the Persian, in the Persian Empire, there were many princes. There was a Jewish prince that led the autonomous Jewish community in Babylon. And the civil leadership appointed judges. And the civil leadership had the right to legislate also. They could make laws for their own community. Communal laws. They weren't religious laws. They were communal laws. But they had the right to make communal laws. They also had the right to appoint scholars to adjudicate, to judge cases. Now, these scholars were not allowed to inflict punish Torah in punishments. They weren't allowed to carry out capital, capital punishment or other Torah punishments because they, weren't, they, weren't, they didn't have any religious authority. They only had the authority the community invested in them. They were essentially, when there was a dispute, they essentially served not as judges but as arbitrators. Essentially, by being a member of the community, you agreed, just by being part of the community, by default, you submit to any agreed upon um, arbitration, if there's any dispute, and you would have to go to arbitrators, community appointed arbitrators, who will arbitrate disputes based on Jewish law, and their arbitrations are binding. But they weren't really judges. They were just arbitrators appointed by the community who had that authority. The same thing also in ritual law. In ritual law, while, th while they could, the scholars could come up with a consensus on ritual law, there was no absolute decision-making anymore because there was no high court to make decisions on ritual law. So all you had was scholars, but these scholars had no religious power invested in them whatsoever. They did not have the ability to make laws, to adjudicate laws. They did not have the ability to judge. They did not have the ability to inflict punishment and prosecute for criminal punishment. All they could do was serve as community-appointed arbitrators where the community binds all its members to any, for any dispute to go to arbitration to these people. They could serve as community-appointed halachic deciders where everybody in the community the community has agreed to accept the halachic decisions of these leaders, but it's all based on agreement. The community agreed on their own. No, no, these people are not a, do not have a court system that has the authority to force anything without communal agreement. So they aren't rabbis, they aren't people with smicha, they're just scholars, but invested with, com the community invested them with communal agreed upon powers 
but they, don't have no, they did not have any religious powers given to them by Torah. Now, because they didn't want everybody to, anybody to just rule on halachic rulings just like that, they didn't want people to, um, people who weren't scholars to start making ruling or to start judging cases. So what they did is they instituted another smicha. This isn't the real smicha. This is not the smicha that goes back to Moses. This was about essentially the same thing. You had to be tested to make sure you knew the rules to prove that you're a real scholar. So if you, you were a real scholar, they would give you the authority, not rabbi. They came up with a new name, Rav. It means the same thing. It means teacher. It's Aramaic. It's not Hebrew. But they would call you Rav. And Rav meant that you are, that another Jewish scholar has approved that you are a scholar as well, has given you scholar, kind of declared you to be a scholar. And now, once you're a Rav, if a community wishes, they can agree to hire you as their Rav that will decide halachic decisions. And then they've essentially agreed on their own to accept your halachic decisions, although, I mean, that's out of their own agreement. Or they could agree to appoint a few Ravs and accept and let them vote on halachic decisions. And they could appoint these Ravs as judges or essentially community-appointed arbitration where the community asks, the, uh, asks these scholars to arbitrate um, any civil disputes. So they're all community-appointed, not given any religious powers like the rabbis, the people with the original smicha, but they're essentially the communities, the people appoint these individuals and invest them with whatever powers the people want to invest them in. And of course the people have the option of changing those powers at will. So it's not an absolute thing. So that is the, so that's the position of Rav. And this position of Rav has essentially continued until today. So Anybody who goes to yeshiva and studies Torah for a very, very long time and becomes a great scholar can then go to a rav, someone who's already a scholar, approved scholar, and get smicha. Smicha would mean they would test you and they would ask you questions and make sure that you know your stuff. And then they would declare you also a rav, that you can serve to um, make halachic decisions. And then a community can appoint you as their halachic decider if they so will. Or you can um, get, um, or they can appoint you as, the, as a judge, an arbitrator to sit on a court um, if, there is, if there is disputes within the community. So they have that option. With time, we split it between, as they had done originally, to a rav that can adjudicate ritual laws, which we call yore yore, which literally means he shall teach, he shall teach. Um, you can adjudicate ritual laws if someone has a question um, on kosher, on Shabbos, or you know, a ritual question, you can rule on those things. And a, um, and Yadin Yadin is someone who could sit and deal with civil law, sit on a court 
and deal with usually yadin. Yadin today includes both civil law and family law. So it will allow you to sit on a court and um, it will allow you to sit on a court and rule in a civil dispute. It will also allow you to deal with family law, particularly do divorces, which is somewhat complicated. Doing divorces somewhat complicated. Deal with family law. Most ra most Ra's with Yoro Yoro also know marriage law. Marriage laws a lot easier. It's a lot easier to get married than to get divorced. <laughs> Believe it or not. Yes, Pamela. Um, the Ravs. Right. So historically the historically <coughs> the role of Rav was only given to men. Historically. The original smicha from Moses was only able to be given to men. That was a rule that God gave us. Um, but historically the Rav position was also only given to men as well. That, 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 that's the way it's always been historically. Yes. Are you, are you going to get into uh, the question of these newly uh, trained and appointed women halakhic authorities who totally also... Sure, we could get into that question. But let, 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 let me... Yes. So, getting even more modern, in this community, all of the rabbis are rabbis? Is that right? Or all of our rabbis here are rabbis, but not, as I'm going to explain soon, not all rabbis are rabbis. So, <laughs> so, um, so now, so historically in Europe, or in the Middle East, wherever our grandparents came from, every community had a rav, which was the rav, or in Yiddish we used to call it a rav, the rav of the community, um, was essentially the person appointed as the one to make the halachic decisions for the community, Many larger communities would also have dayonim, would have judges, would have a court, and people appointed by the community to sit in judgment. Historically, we had very, very organized communities. In Europe, actually, uh, in the Middle East, uh, rather than being called a rav, they were usually called a chacham. chacham. Chacham means wise one. But it was, again, the person appointed by the community to sit in the, kind of, as the leader of the um, to, to be the leader of the community for halachic decisions. Now, in the 19th century, there was a movement in many countries in Europe to try to control Jewish life, for the government in particular to control Jewish life. Until then, Jewish life had been totally autonomous. Jews did whatever they wanted. There was a movement to control Jewish life. And it started in France with Napoleon, who decided that he first did it with the church, that all priests, rather than being paid by the Catholic Church, will be paid by the French state, which they still are, by the way, till today. They get their salaries from the state. Um, and um, he did the same for other religions. All rabbis get their salaries from the state. And that way, this, this in that way, the state controls Is the religion. In France, yes. Mm -hmm. yes. Not everyone with the title rabbi, but every officially appointed rabbi is getting their salaries from the state. Yes. So um, that's the way it is in France. It, this movement spread across Europe. And so they made all sorts of, in many communities, in many, sorry, many countries, they made rules for rabbis. In other words, the government made rules for rabbis. Particularly in Russia, 
they made rules that all rabbis have to have a university degree, have to have a degree. Now, there are a few problems. Firstly, Jews couldn't get into university. <laughs> that, that was the first problem. Secondly, religious Jews in particular had trouble getting into university. And finally, rabbis didn't see much value in a university degree. They were better off spending their time in yeshivas, which led to many communities having two rabbis or two people that would be, there was the rav, the rabbi of the community, and then there was the rav mitam. Rav mitam means the rabbi, it's a short for Rav Mitam Hamem Shalom, the rabbi from the government's perspective. So Mitam means from perspective. Rav Mitam Hamem Shalom is just a short Rav Mitam, the rabbi from the government's perspective. And now, the Rav in the community, he was the one, uh, the Rav in the community was the one who made all the halachic decisions, and they were the one people came to when they had a halachic question. They were the ones that usually took care of the marriages. The Rav Mitam was the one that took care of the government-related stuff. They would fill out the marriage certificates and the death certificates. That was their job. And so being a rabbi or a Rav became now a different, there were two different things. There was the Rav, whose job it was to resolve halachic questions, right? And then there was the, ra the rav, rav Mitam, as they were called back in Europe, the rabbi who was the, I guess, legal spiritual leader of the community. Nobody necessarily respected them. It was just somebody who was hired for the job. They were essentially a clerk, but they were, from the government's perspective, the rabbi of the town. Yes, I actually once, uh, my sister once bumped into somebody who said, um, told her that her grandfather came from the same town that my grandfather came from, a town called Dukshitz in, um, in, um, in Lithuania. So she went to my grandfather, she said, did, did you know, and he told, I forget what the name was, he told her, she, she, um, her friend told her the grandfather's name, so she went to my grandfather and she said, do you know who, did you remember him from the town? And he says, oh yeah, he was the Rav Mitam. He was the oh. other rabbi. <laughs> so, sorry? Administrative. Administrative rabbi. They weren't necessarily bad people. It was just a job. So that, that was the role. Now, a similar thing happened in the United States. In fact, in the United States, for whatever reason, um, before 1850, there were no rabbonim or no rav for some reason, never came to the United States. As the community was growing, scholars didn't, Jewish scholars didn't come. Jewish approved Jewish scholars weren't coming to the United States for whatever reason. Now, you could have a shul, you don't need a rov. If you have trouble, you run into halachic questions. You could send a letter to a rov somewhere else, to a rov in Europe. It wasn't a big deal. I mean, it was a big deal, but it was, it was manageable. It was doable. You, you don't need a rub to lead the services. Anyone, anyone who knows how to read Hebrew could lead a service, right? Sermons is a 20th century invention that we took from, um, from, that we took from Christianity. So it wasn't, um, there, was never, there never used to be sermons. You, you don't need a rabbi, right? 
and they were just fine without a rabbi. There was only one problem here in the United States, which is that most states required people to get married with clergy. There was no such thing then as um, uh, the just, what are they called today? Justice of the peace. They didn't have that then. You had to get married with clergy. The problem is that most Jewish communities here in the United States in the early 19th century, no Jewish community had clergy. So what do you do? So what do you do? So they came up. Sorry, Anna. We weren't having our wives back in Europe beginning of the period? Not then. Not back then. Later. So, so what, is, what do they do? So Jews, of course, are... Um, uh, Jews always come up with solutions to every problem. So they came up with a simple, simple solution. They said, one second, we have a cantor. Who was the cantor? The cantor was usually the person in the synagogue with the best voice, right? Because you sing, you, whoever leads the service, there's someone who sings. We have a cantor. The cantor is our clergy. So many states even legislated that cantors also are part of the list of approved clergy to do weddings, which is fine, as long as you know. Now, the Talmud does say you're not allowed, you, know, you cannot get married on your own. You need somebody who's an expert in the laws of weddings in order to get married. But it doesn't necessarily need to be a rough. It could be anyone who has knowledge in the laws of weddings, anyone who's confident they know what they're doing, could marry someone, that's fine. How knowledgeable these cantors were, I don't know. But in Jewish communities, what they did is they took the person with the best voice, and they were the cantor, and they were, <coughs> they were ordained to do weddings. And that's why you may have heard of ordaining cantors, um, or they called it investing. They don't want to call it ordaining, because it sounds too much like the smicha. They called it investing cantors. So... So it was usually the person with the best voice, and they, they had a good voice. They could, um, they could, they could um, do weddings. Now, with time, here in the U.S., uh, with time, rabbis, rabbanim people that did have halachic um, knowledge and did know the rules came to the U.S. and became leaders. Except here in the United States, we have a very funny thing that's lasted till today. There has never been an organized Jewish community here in the United States, ever. There has never been an organized Jewish community. In Europe, it sounds like that today, every town has a kahila, has an organized Jewish community that appoints rabbonim, appoints judges, appoints courts. Everybody's a member. There was never an organized Jewish community here in the United States. What they had is specific synag organized synagogues. So organized synagogues, which were small groups, appointed their own rav to rule on their, halachic, on their halachic issues. But what happened is Jews in the United States began to assimilate very, very quickly. And with time, many of the Jews were actually not very concerned about halacha at all. They weren't concerned about Jewish law. And so with time, the position of the rav, or as they became known in English in U.S. as a rabbi, the position of the rabbi essentially became the spiritual leader, um, I guess the person who knows about Judaism, because most of the people in their congregation didn't know very much, and the person who can. Sermons were brought in, so the person who could give the sermon, and often the only person in the congregation who reads Hebrew. 
So um, the rabbi became not a halachic decider, but in many communities today, the rabbi is either a spiritual leader, in other words, the person that mentors the community, or the person who runs the programs, or the person who conducts, leads the services. Right? So that became the position of rabbi today in the United States. Yes? But I thought to become a rabbi in the United States, you had to get that master's degree or whatever. Smicha. Do you need to have smicha? So in order to, to rule on halachic questions, you need to have smicha. Now, many people have smicha and don't actually take any positions in any communities. Many people have leadership positions in, the com in communities without actually having smicha. There are firstly many organizations today that ordain rabbis and the process of ordination looks nothing like the traditional smicha. There are also there are also many communities that don't really care what you did. If you could give a good sermon and you know how to inspire the congregation, what more do they need? They're not worried about halachic questions. So today, today, most people in this country with the title rabbi, and in Israel it's totally different, but in most people in this country with the title rabbi, firstly, many people like to go by the name rabbi, just because they know how to read Hebrew. And they happen to be, you know, they, they, you hear all the time, or they look like a religious Jew, they're called rabbis. They're not, I mean, they may be. Some people have smicha, and they're not actually filling a position of responding to halachic questions. Most rabbis here in the United States don't actually, most rabbis here in the United States do not actually have smicha. And their role is simply a spiritual leader. So, with the question of can women become rabbis, right? which is the question. Can women become rabbis? It depends. According, according to our tradition, according to Jewish traditions, the Rav, in other words, the person who has a um, who has, has been given, the invested the authority. Firstly, no, the original smicha from Moses was only given to men. That's very clear. The smicha that we have today, which was created much later, which was created in the, third, in the fourth or fifth centuries, or perhaps even later, which was giving people the um, authority to rule on halachic questions but have no religious authority invested in them, so traditionally, we have given that to men. We have not given it to women. Can it be given to women? I don't know. It's debatable. Um, there's, a, there's a lot of debate on it. Um, in, addressing this, in addressing a similar question um, two weeks ago with regard to women wearing tefillin, or many weeks ago with regard to women wearing a talus, which um, part of the issue is um, not just can women do it, which is debated halachically, um, but part of the question is also why they are doing that. In other words, is the goal to, uh, is the goal to modernize Judaism or change Judaism from the way it's always been, or is the goal to be able to improve things? 
So and it may, there's a, it's a big difference, right? If you're doing something because you're protesting, because you want to be the first ordained woman rabbi, and you want to show that Judaism can follow modern feminist sensibilities, then you're making a protest statement against Jewish traditions. That would be wrong. If it's convenient, if it's helpful, if there's women who have the knowledge, and why shouldn't they do that? That's excellent. So, I mean, well, that's debated whether they can have the position of rab. That's debated. Now, that's if your goal is to be a rab, right? But remember, most rabbis today are not rabs, right? So it depends what your role is then. So in many places, the rabbi's role is to lead the services. And we've spoken before about women's role in services. We did a class on that. And from a halachic perspective, women cannot lead the services. Now, leading the services meaning the cantor. They cannot be the one that sit, stand in front of the congregation and lead the services. Giving a lecture in the synagogue, anyone can lecture. But if leading the services meaning standing in front of the congregation and singing, which most rabs don't, most rabbis don't even do. Um, but if that's what it means, then they cannot do it. If it means giving a lecture in the synagogue, they can't do it. If it means being a spiritual leader, if the role is to be a spiritual leader, if that's what it means to be a spiritual leader of the congregation, there is no women, reason that women should not be able to do it. Unless they're doing so in protest to Judaism. Um, like your, your synagogue announces we're the first one to hire a, women, a woman rabbi to show our feminist qualities. But if you're, but if you want a spiritual leader for the women, uh, you want a female spiritual leader who's going to inspire the community and that's their role as a pastor, as a community inspirer, as a teacher to teach classes, that would be a wonderful thing. In fact, historically, in Europe, historically, most rabbis, most ravs, did not get the position alone, but got the position as a couple. Where the rav, his role, his official role was to answer halachic questions. But he also tended to do pastoring or taking care of the community. And in that, he and his wife, who was known as the Rebetzin, were equal. And so if the role is just pastoring the community, there's no reason why women should not have it equal to men. And in fact, in the Chabad movement, which we gave you a background about a few weeks ago, and which we're part of, the Chabad, the JCC is part of the Chabad movement. In the Chabad movement, the policy that the Rebbe set forth was that all Chabad shluchim, or all Chabad rabbis or leaders, do not have to be ravs. We don't have to be able to answer halachic questions, although I happen to be a rav. But <laughs> you, don't, you don't need to be able to answer halachic questions in order to get that position, because you're just a spiritual leader. Your role is not to answer halachic questions. You're like any other rabbi in this country, most of whom don't have smicha, don't have a traditional smicha. And the Rebbe's rule was that, it, that, all, that the Rebbe would call it shluchim, the shliach and shlucha, or um, emissaries. And um, the Rebbe's rule was that the shluchim have to always, those that found Chabad organizations or Chabad communities, um, must, al must always be a couple. Never, a, never um, you can never be single. It must always be a couple. 
and that they hold the role together and that they are co-founders. So in our um, community, we have four couple rabbis or four couples of shluchim and we're couples and we lead the community together as couples. We have the roles together. Now in leading the actual services in the synagogue, um, as we said, that, the, that, that um, traditionally men do um, in the actual, although the women can speak um, and they do sometimes um, in the in the halachic decision making, you need someone who actually has smicha and has the title of rav, which is generally given to men. But in the general, being a rabbi, what as most rabbis in the U.S. today are, being a spiritual leader, inspirer, and teacher in the community, we do that as couples. And uh, in most Jewish communities today, it, it's done like that as well.